Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast today on the pod. Remember when an apology was enough? Post-secondary education minister Selena Robinson vows to take anti-Islamophobia training as activists continue to demand her resignation. And too bad, so sad. How did Vancouver manage to get more World Cup games than Toronto? And Opari, after banning e-scooters on their streets, Paris votes to triple parking fees for SUVs. Would Vancouver Council ever head down that road? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. After resisting calls to resign, apologizing for her comments and promising to take anti-Islamophobia training, post-secondary education minister and MLA for Coquitlam Millardville, Selena Robinson, is stepping down at a press conference 90 minutes ago. Premier David Eby says Robinson's belittling remarks were incompatible with her remaining in cabinet, uh, although she will stay in the NDP caucus. Here is Premier Eby. The reason for this decision is that over the past few days, both Minister Robinson and myself have been reaching out to the many communities that have been harmed by her remarks uh, made on a panel uh, that she participated in to understand how to make things better. When you hurt somebody, you need to reach out to them and try to figure out what the best way is to reduce the harm and address the hurt that has been caused. Now, Robinson is stepping down over her remarks that modern Israel uh, and how it was founded. Uh, she was speaking to an online B'nai B'rith Canada panel last week. Her comments surfaced on social media, leading to, of course, mounting calls for her resignation by pro-Palestinian groups and many others. Take a listen to those comments that she made on that panel in regards to how modern Israel was founded. They don't understand that it was a crappy piece of land with nothing on it. You know, there were, you know, several hundred thousand people. But other than that, it didn't produce an economy. It didn't have, it couldn't grow things. So that was a reference to uh, the land uh, that uh, angered many organizations. More than a dozen British Columbia mosques and Islamic associations uh, did send a letter to Premier Eby calling for Robinson to be removed from her role. And I do want to say that earlier today, she also tweeted out a statement basically saying that uh, she would be taking anti-Islamophobia training uh, courses to deal with the hurt she says she has called. And prior to that, she did apologize. Joining me now to talk about the situation and this fast-evolving story is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief and Richard. Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Keith, Richard, welcome. Good to be here, Jess. Uh, let's start, yeah, thanks, uh, let me start with you, Keith. Uh, your thoughts on this? Uh, some have said it was the right thing to do. Others have said uh, Premier Eby should not have gone this far, that uh, he is reacting to a mob, a social media mob, and it shouldn't. he shouldn't have done what he did. Your thoughts? Well, first of all, anytime a cabinet minister resigns, it's big news. That's certainly the case here. This is very unique, though. This did not come as a result of the elected political opposition demanding a resignation, demanding that a minister get fired. In fact, the opposition has gone completely quiet on this, with the exception of a couple um, members of BC United and former members of BC Liberals going on social media expressing support for Robinson. So this is very much an extra-parliamentary opposition, unelected, 
um, taking to the street, basically uh, protesting outside uh, an NDP caucus meeting today, planned protests outside a council fundraising meeting. So this is a very unusual resignation where the political opposition played no role in this. And it's also amazing how fast this moved. So on Friday, there was sort of a, an apology, and I got a sense of protectiveness talking to NDP caucus members. But over the weekend, as the social media airways were filled with protests from a, t- a select few groups, the pressure that MLAs were picking up, I think, became quite noticeable. And by last night, I was certainly texting with MLAs, uh, getting the impression that a resignation was coming from Selena Robbins. So, so again, a very unusual uh, turn of events and how this all unfolded. And it's a little concerning, too, when you allow social media basically to amp up, I think, uh, something to happen to the point of uh, of quite seriousness and resulting in a minister being forced out, again, not by elected representatives, mm-hmm. but by unelected people. Uh, Richard, your thoughts on this? I mean, oh, there were protests outside uh, the cabinet meetings. Uh, there were uh, threatening protests uh, at uh, present and future NDP fundraisers. Uh, what do you think of all this? I mean, does this send uh, does this send sort of a message to the political class that uh, that perhaps you have to be even more careful in regards to what you say? You're trying to have an open dialogue, and maybe the comments were inelegant. I would I've said that already, and she shouldn't have said them. Absolutely, she was wrong. But what does this say about the broader conversation then you know elected officials it may be even you know would he would go out of their way now to, to not say what needs to be said all the time like you'll be quieter you'll be more careful with your words does this not send a chill to a certain degree i think it does for sure i think there is a standard that has been created here where politicians will be more reluctant to speak their mind i think it also reminds politicians that they should focus in on those issues that they can really control. And Mm -hmm. when you move away from those issues you can control, uh, it opens up wider room for criticism. And I was convinced, like Keith was, that this largely was driven by an online social media movement until I spoke, you know, 15 minutes ago with leaders in the Muslim community Mm -hmm. who penned that letter banning the NDP for mosques. And the sense I got from those conversations was there was legitimate hurt in the Muslim community over these comments and a reflection that if Selena Robinson is truly going to understand the hurt that she has caused here, mm-hmm. she needs to take time to reflect upon that. And being in cabinet is a busy job, takes up a lot of time, and there would be no time for true reflection and true learning if she did not step away. And I'm not convinced, if it was only reflection through social media, I believe that Selena Robinson would still be the Minister of Post-Secondary Education. But because the Muslim community came out with this letter and said, you are not welcome in our community spaces, our mosques, until you show meaningful steps, i.e. a resignation in learning and moving forward, Mm -hmm. I think that ultimately push this over to the point where we've seen this resignation. Uh, Keith, uh, Richard raises a very good point in regards to the fact that, you know, a few days ago it it looked like the the government, the party, would be supportive of Ms. Robinson. Uh, How much of this do you think even the Premier and the staff were rather shocked by sort of the vociferous response over the weekend? Uh, And I guess partially politics will play a role in this, that you're heading into a legislative session, you've got a throne speech, you're not too far from election. You kind of have to eye that a little bit and say, do we really need this noise? 
Well, Richard raises a good point about the letter from the from the Moss uh, was a game changer. Um, but I still think that social media was was amping up to the point that was certainly the talk um, over the weekend. But the letter amplified that even further. And I think a critical piece of this is the fact we're in election year. We're you know six months away from the campaign. And if you're suddenly going to get dogged by protesters and be shut out of an entire um, community, religious community, that's problematic in a campaign. I mean, those protesters could have dogged David Eby's campaign, leadership uh, um, election campaign, mm-hmm. uh, through, uh, through an entire campaign. Not what a leader wants, uh, not the best look for a leader to have. So I think election timing was also a bit of a factor here. But a lot of things came together very quickly, I think, and um, just uh, reached an untenable point for Selena Robinson to continue. Uh, Richard's right. I mean, it's a full-time job, and you've got to give the impression, if you are sincere in learning about something else that's got really nothing to do with your ministry, that takes time to do it, and Mm -hmm. uh, she just didn't have the time as a minister. Uh, My final question to you, Richard. Uh, The opposition, as Keith said, uh, was relatively quiet beyond, I think, uh, uh, I think the Green Party certainly spoke up, their members, uh, but certainly BC United, the official opposition, and the BC Conservatives stayed away from this. What does this say sort of in a broader sense in regards to those two parties and the government itself? I mean, how do you think things will look moving forward uh, with all that's transpired? Yeah, I think it's a changing dynamic. I think this government is much more willing to listen to what they hear in community rather than what they hear from the opposition. The opposition historically has represented those voices in community that feel unheard, but through social media, through good stakeholder engagement, governments can hear those voices themselves. And before the opposition raises it as a concern, this government has proven that they can respond. And it really sucks the air out of those attacks from opposition. And I think in part is why we're seeing what we're seeing in the polls, where the NDP are doing things the public is not particularly happy about on health care, on housing, on affordability, but they are showing an effort to respond, to react, to learn. And that's why we're seeing this gap where the public is saying, I'm not happy with this, but I would like to reelect the NDP. I I think this issue uh, is representative of all of that. Heard concerns from communities, reacted, and now they're moving forward uh, based on those concerns. Uh, Richard Key, thank you. All right, take care. Thanks, Joss. Former B.C. Labour Minister Ian Black is entering the race to run for the federal Conservatives uh, in the riding of Coquitlam, Port Coquitlam. Uh, Mr. Black was a, a former Labour Minister, as I said, under uh, Gordon Campbell's B.C. Liberal uh, Premiership. He has also served as a Chief Executive Officer of the Vancouver Board of Trade uh, and now is back in the uh, private sector uh, as President CEO of Maximizer Software. Uh, and he joins us now. Ian, welcome. Thanks for having me here and good afternoon to your listeners. Good afternoon to you uh, as well. Uh, this weekend, we found out that you said you're going to put your hat back into the ring and, and seek the Conservative nomination in the riding of Coquitlam, Port Coquitlam, uh, for right now, knock on wood, it's the 2025 federal election. <laughs> don't know when that's going to happen exactly. Uh, why do you want to do it? Well, yeah, it was a surreal weekend. I, I can <laughs> tell you, I, I honestly, if you'd asked me a year ago whether I'd find myself having this conversation with you on, on, on this topic today, I, mm-hmm. I would have told you were nuts. Um, why do I want to do it? Well, I think what's driving me most is I'm really, really concerned 
about the state of where we're at in the country. I mean, I've always been a political guy, like even since a little boy delivering newspapers in, in the cold. Uh, I would read them house to house. And so I got very aware of political issues. These guys mm-hmm. named Brian Mulroney and Pierre Trudeau and Jacques Parizeau and all these guys. So I was all, I developed an interest in politics really early. So that was lifelong. Had this amazing experience, twice elected as an MLA and a cabinet minister in the province. And I thought that was it. That was such a privilege to do that. Um, it never really leaves your blood. I mean, mm-hmm. I've been involved in recruiting candidates and, and trying to find terrific people to serve in public office and, you know, raise money for them. But I, I reached this point in February where I just was consistently and increasingly agitated. And I finally turned to my wife and I said, I, I, really, I really think I have to think about going back because I'm, I'm, I'm really agitated about it. And, and God bless her. She looked at me and she said, what took you so long? Really? She said, yeah. I been, she said, I've been expecting this conversation for about six years. What is, what is going wrong in your mind in regards to this, this prime minister and, and his leadership? Well, I mean, it's – where do you start? I just think we've lost our way at the, at the summary comment. I mean, if you look at issues of housing affordability across the country, it is a t- completely out of control and now out of reach for arguably an entire generation. If you look at the, the, not just that, but the cost of everything, talk to the person in front of you and behind you in, in, in line at Costco mm-hmm. and ask them whether they think they're getting a good deal on anything. It's just not happening. So you got like senior citizens now making a choice between eating and heating, at least at a nutritional level, and you've got families old and young who are worried about their mortgage renewing and what that's going to look like because they may have bought the house if they could even get into the market three years ago when interest or prime interest rate was 0.5 or a point. Now it's literally 10 times that at 5% or 5.5%. And those, those individuals who are already right at the wire are now going to look at a mortgage uh, cost per month that go up by hundreds if not a thousand bucks. So those types of things are very distressing to me. I think we've lost credibility on the world stage. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that we have got a fragmented country who's just on edge at the moment because nothing is working federally but, and they've but, run out of gas. But do you think that's because of Mr. Trudeau? It's the polarized environment we're in. Some would even say uh, the leader of the Conservatives is part of the problem because mm-hmm. he, he has very, he's very specific in regards to what he says, how he speaks, and some would say even his comments are polarizing. So uh, I'm trying to understand in regards to the housing issue, let's, let's choose that one for sure. a moment. How would you go about addressing it? I don't expect you to have a 10-point answer for me right here, mm-hmm. but how do you think we should be addressing at the federal level? Because the federal le- federally, since the 80s, we got out of the affordable housing business as a federal government. How do you plan to fix it? Well, one of the things that draw me to this was the common sense plan that Pierre Polyevres is is is, uh, is, is consistently and, and in wonderfully simplified terms talking about. And when it comes to housing affordability, um, one of the key things he's focusing on is getting more affordable housing building by, built by putting the right incentives in place at the municipal level. When, mm-hmm. you get, when you put money in place for affordable housing with a municipality and five years later they don't have a shovel in the ground, that's a problem. I mean, five years, I, I once heard one of my colleagues say, five years, that is the same period of time during which we have twice entered into and won a world war, mm-hmm. and yet we can't get an apartment building built for people who desperately need that to relieve the pressure in other parts of the housing market for families who otherwise might actually be able to afford to get into it. Mm-hmm. What year did you leave provincial politics? 2011. 2011, so more than a decade ago. Yep. Uh, a decade is a millennia in politics. I think you oh, agree yeah. with six that. M- six months is a lifetime. Yeah, so the, the conversation is different today. It is more polarized. You mm-hmm. add in even a more uh, you know social media that's come along. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, and a mainstream media that uh, is not as uh, you know as wide as it once was. It reaches and is the same. Many businesses have shut down. Um the the, the the era is so different now. Mm-hmm. 
uh, today, Selena Robinson had to step down because mm-hmm. of an errant comment she made mm-hmm. uh, on on a Zoom call. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do you want to enter again? It's the same question again, <laughs> because, you know, politics has difficulty attracting good people now. Uh, we've got this, we, people talk about the gotcha mentality before. It's mm-hmm. even worse, and it's a lot of activists involved. I mean, do you do you sort of understand the era you're walking into now? You're not, you're not doing much to make me feel better about no, my decision, No, I'm Jeff. not, my friend, I'm not. But I'm just saying, a, a good person, uh, yeah. who I do not think is an Islamophobe, made a bad comment, but is not in cabinet today because of yeah. one errant Fewer errant words. I think what's happened in the air. I mean, I, I I grew up in the tech sector before I went into politics. I, mm. I ran technology companies for about fifteen years, and I grew up in that internet space. I was there at the very beginning of of email through to the first social media, the first first Facebook accounts, which apparently makes me old, mm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. I've grown up through this phenomenon. I've raised children in this phenomenon. My observation would be that social media has increased the um, the importance of choosing your words carefully. Uh, the forgiveness seems to have disappeared, but I think it's it's uh, like you can't uh, you find yourselves in this difficult spot where the public will very often say that they want they don't want you to be too scripted. They don't want to hear a rehearsed speech. They don't want to hear the rhetoric and the sound bites. But on the other hand, that same population can be utterly forgiving when you make a comment that just in the spur of the moment, without time to think it through, you just kind of give a gut reaction. And, and what I learned the first time when I had the privilege of being elected was that your words carry more weight when you're an elected person. And your words and your actions are magnified more. And you lose that ability to be as relaxed. And so your brain never turns off. I mean, it's, I remember it well from the first time I was in it. You're, you're working seven days a week. Like your brain doesn't shut down. And you have to be very, very guarded and careful. And, and it's when you're being a little bit relaxed or a little bit aloof that it bites you, and it's it's only worse now than it used to be. Was that part of your decision making process this time? What just the just the idea of I've got to go back to that life where I'm on twenty four seven. Every word's going to matter, uh, and right now I have the benefits of being in the private sector, being a private citizen. I mean, did was that part of your thinking process before you well, jump in? It wasn't an attractive part of it, but it was uh, having the benefit of having been in it. Mm-hmm. I could actually have that sober conversation with my wife over five or six weeks. And said, like, do you, are you ready for this? Can you mm-hmm. steal yourself to it? And it was looking at the issues that, you know, Pierre Poliev is, is, is focusing on the, the tragedy of the, the homeless and drug addiction and mental health crisis in this country. Mm-hmm. The, whatever we're doing, it's not working. And those, those issues, you know, I mean, we talked about affordability, we talked about crime. We now suddenly we've got car theft as a major mm-hmm. topic. You've got money being given to the Toronto municipality by the federal government to do with car theft. I mean, when would that have been a, an article 10 years ago or a topic mm-hmm. in the news? So we've just in this weird space right now where whatever we're doing at a federal level, it's not working. And we need a whole new approach. We need to simplify things. And I think that's what you can expect out of the next government. E. Black, uh, I was just saying it's going to be tough to uh, get good people to run. It always is in politics. But uh, I know you bring lots of experience in the public and private sector. Mm-hmm. Wish you well. Thank you. And thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me here. We learned at 1.30 today that Premier David Eby uh, reminded all of us uh, that uh, this whole issue around Selena Robinson, which has been swirling for quite some time, that uh, her comments or belittling remarks, as he called them, were incompatible with uh, her remaining on cabinet uh, and that she would be stepping down. Take a listen to his comments. The reason for this decision is that over the past few days, both Minister Robinson and myself 
have been reaching out to the many communities that have been harmed by her remarks uh, made on a panel uh, that she participated in to understand how to make things better. When you hurt somebody, you need to reach out to them and try to figure out what the best way is to reduce the harm and address the hurt that has been caused. Now, uh, Selena Robinson's comments were made during an online Benign Birth Canada panel uh, last week, which surfaced uh, recently, uh, leading to mounting calls for her resignation by pro-Palestinian groups and many other organizations, many Muslim community members uh, as well. Now, I do want to say that uh, Ms. Robinson did resist calls to resign, apologize for her comments, promised to take anti-Islamophobia training uh, program uh, as well. Uh, but it was during that panel where she made the, these comments. Take a listen in regard to those that asked her to step down. Take a listen. They don't understand that it was a crappy piece of land with nothing on it. it you know, there were, you know, several hundred thousand people. But other than that, it didn't produce an economy. It didn't have, it couldn't grow things. That was Selena Robinson speaking on a panel with the B'nai B'rith uh, uh, organization. Well, joining me now is Haroon Khan, director with Al Masjid Al Jamia in Vancouver and a uh, member of the Pakistan Canada Association. Haroon, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jess. So let's get to the point here. Do you think this is the right thing for the minister to do? I think it was the appropriate decision to make. Um, you know, one of the things that I really like to express is that the calls for a resignation wasn't just coming from our Muslim community. It was broad-based. You had independent Jewish voices, Aboriginal voices. You had voices from uh, campuses and um, across the province that didn't feel safe having her representing British Columbia as the Minister of Post-Secondary and Higher Education. Mm-hmm. She basically besmirched it, and uh, um, you know, and her comments uh, were made, uh, were ill-advised comments were made in, in such a way that it caused significant uh, pain, uh, you know, and upset. It's a volatile situation in Palestine uh, and Israel. For, uh, and, uh, um, you know, people are dying every day, men, women, children, babies. It um, It's a live-streamed 24 hours, seven days a week genocide that we're all seeing each and every day. And her words, uh, flippant as they were delivered, was simply gasoline on an already burning fire. So getting to her specific comments, uh, uh, referring uh, to Israel there, uh, or, you know, essentially saying that the region lacked natural resources. And some can say she said more than that. It certainly was inelegant how she said it. You said it was flippant. uh, It was insensitive. So be it. Um, But based on those specific comments, should a minister have to resign? I mean, she's apologized. She said she would take courses in uh, Islamophobia and encountering Islamophobia. Um, Isn't that enough? I mean, you don't believe her to be a person who hates Muslims. Uh, She's of the Jewish faith. She, from my experience with her, a good person, a decent person, who made some really insensitive comments. Sure, I get that. But does a minister have to resign over that? Well, let's break down her comments. Okay. You know, that uh, this is a crappy piece of land with several hundred thousand people on it. So what she's saying is that the land of Palestine, which has existed for millennia, the birthplace of Jesus Christ, among many others, uh, that place that had a thriving economy, had agriculture, had arts, had uh, uh, professionals in law and medicine, uh, a, a beacon 
uh, as it, as it was for uh, for for many many uh, uh, millennia, for thousands of years. To call that a crappy piece of land besmirches the, the great legacy of the past of Palestine. And the recent past, you know, like they refer to 1948 as the Nabka, the catastrophe. And her words, that crappy piece of land that, uh, that were several hundred thousand people who, by the way, were then displaced, ethnically cleansed from their land. Now we have a second Nabka going on. People are dying day after day after day after day. And her words, again... Gasoline to an already burning fire. So you know. So uh, so yes, I'm sure she is a good person. I'm sure she's contrite. All of those things. But when you're holding a position where you're representing all British Columbians, you're the minister of mm-hmm. post secondary and higher education. You're supposed to lead the way of understanding. You're supposed to lead the way and, and provide an example of how people can work together and broaden their imagination mm-hmm. and be of a higher learning. Yet her ignorant words, her false words, her defamatory words, they have consequences. We like to say words matter, but mm-hmm. words, you know, words matter for everyone. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, uh, she only has herself to blame on this. But at the same time, I take solace uh, in part by her, her most recent words, that even though she has taken the steps to resign, she has said that that resignation does not absolve her from doing the work that she's promised to do, which is to uh, engage with our communities, to engage with the indigenous communities and other communities that she has uh, let down. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and I'd like to say that you know, our hands are open. You know, our, uh, our doors are open and we'd be happy to help her and, help, uh, and meet her and get her to a point where she can gain some understanding and communicate that uh, to others. And that way, together, we can work towards some sense of truth and reconciliation. It's possible. We've seen that here in British Columbia with our indigenous nations. So let me just jump in here for a second. Arun. Sure. And, and I, I understand where you're coming from. Um, she is also of the Jewish faith. Yes. She is also feeling hurt. Of course. Uh, her people of her faith were attacked and killed by a terrorist organization, Hamas. She is also feeling hurt. And yes, sometimes you can make comments that are perhaps, as I've said before, inelegant. Uh, with, as, as she discussed that, as she was within the context of that conversation. Is there not some leeway within this conversation, I understand where you're coming from, and, and I don't disagree with you, but every time we ask politicians to make themselves available to speak openly, we then say, you must resign now because you spoke openly. Like, how do we collectively as a society still allow for free expression, uh, leave an open, uh, leave, you know, li- provide some leeway for elected officials to speak thoughtfully. The minute, you know, this is all, this, all this does is tell politicians also, don't say a thing. Don't make yourself available for some meeting. Find an excuse to not go. I'm not saying what she said was right, but we consistently ask these people to resign because something was said. I would have to disagree with you, Chaz. You, uh, uh, you were talking about speaking thoughtfully. Mm-hmm. She spoke 
thoughtlessly. Mm-hmm. Uh, like her, her words uh, speak for themselves, and they speak volumes to ignorance. They speak volumes to uh, normalizing uh, what is in a very unnormal situation. What is happening is not normal. The fact that people are, are being killed and obliterated, whole generations of family be, being blown up, uh, no water, no food, no mm-hmm. electricity, human uh, um, aid not being allowed to come in, a forced siege that's gone on for 122 days. Is that normal? Mm-hmm. And her saying, oh, well, you know, it, it just, you know, it, this, these things happen. If, this, if these were two tribes in the First Nations, then, you know, you wouldn't get involved in it. It's none of our business. She said these words. Mm-hmm. You didn't quote these words, or I'm quoting her own words to you. Yep. It's beyond the pale that she, uh, th- that she would think that this is an acceptable discourse to make publicly when you represent all people. Just joining us, we're speaking to Haroon Khan, director with uh, Al Masjid Al Jamia in Vancouver, and with the Pakistan Canada Association. We're talking about the resignation of Selena Robinson today from uh, the provincial cabinet. Uh, Mr. Khan says it was the right thing to do because her comments were insensitive. Uh, call us on the open line. I want to hear from you in regards to uh, what Ms. Robinson said, and of course her resignation. Six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight star ninety eight ninety eight on your cell phone. Let's go to Ryan in Vancouver. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Jazz. Uh, I just wanted to say two things. First of all, I think her argument was pretty profoundly ignorant, not just from the standpoint of the Middle East, but just of colonialism in general. You know, mm-hmm. one, one country is less economically developed, therefore another country needs, gets to go in and colonize it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not exactly what happened here, but another people gets to. Um, I, don't, I think it's, it's a bad argument, not just if you're opposed to Israel, but even if you support Israel. You, you, Israel can do better than that. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the second point I want to make is that I think it speaks to the silos we live in today. You know, you could live in this, this community and have these arguments within your community that sound good to like-minded people, that sound absolutely awful to everyone else. And and we don't need to have these conversations anymore between, maybe we never did, between different groups of people and people who aren't like-minded to try to come to an understanding. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what this is really emblematic of. Yeah, Ryan, thank you for your call. Appreciate it. You're kind of right. And, and when, you're, when you're speaking on a Zoom call, it's going to be recorded, uh, even if yeah. you don't think it is. And that's part of the challenge, right? That's true. But, yeah. but uh, you know, it's. I think you raise a very good, very good point. And that when we're speaking amongst uh, friends, uh, you sometimes may be more open and uh, perhaps uh, less cognizant of your words. And, and when you're an elected official, words matter, every single word. Uh, let's go to Mike and Langley. Hi, Mike. Hey, how's it going? And, I mean, to me, this is such a tough issue to deal with because uh, she has the right to say things, and it's her side of the story. My only issue is that there's also the other side of the coin. There is nothing good about this conflict. Both sides are doing atrocious things to people. And how can anybody try to um, try to justify that they have the right side when it's just all things Oh, like, both yep. sides are doing horrible things. Mike, thank you for your call. Uh, Haroon, you can jump in, but I'm going to answer the question uh, as a former elected official. If you do not have control of a situation, you probably shouldn't be uh, addressing it in such a specific way. Uh, we, as a BC government, whatever that may be, if you're an elected official, are responsible for international trade, foreign affairs, and our policies around foreign 
issues are handled by the federal government. Uh, and not that you can't comment as an elected official, not that you can't comment as, an, as, a, as a citizen, but it gets you in trouble because ultimately Selena Robinson isn't uh, responsible for foreign affairs and has no impact on any of this. Should have just stayed away from it. That's a pragmatic, practical response. Yeah, that's very true, Jazz. And I think one of the things to realize, and I think a lot of your listeners, I've heard this come up again and again and again today, this is a teachable moment. Like if you look at it, uh, you know, like the foibles of, a, you know, a minister who's lost her position, it means only so much, okay? And it's a tough time for her. I feel for that. I understand. But at the same time, look uh, look at the the fire that, uh, that, that got even hotter mm-hmm. around this topic. People are upset. Horrible things are happening. And people want to talk about it. We want to have these tough conversations. So it's a teachable moment. Let's talk. Let's talk about these things. And hopefully, you know, gain some consensus on how we can all move to move together and move forward. Let's go to Marion on Vancouver Island. Hi, Mary. Well, I think the fact that B'nai B'rith has come out and said that uh, they don't, they do not stand behind her comments says it all. <laughs> and uh, you can have deeply held belief systems and be a nice person, Jazz. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I'm not, I, and I, I agree with you, and I don't disagree with you on that. My concern broadly, and which I've articulated to Haroon and all of you, is that you know at some point politicians are going to you know stray or not stray stay away from getting involved with any of this stuff and this is the problem i'm not saying that you need to be commenting about the middle east but anything remotely controversial that you know can be taped and can be misconstrued uh, can be manipulated i'm not saying it's been manipulated here but it just leads to as you go further and further and you look at this issue it's tougher to attract good people into politics it's tougher for politicians to talk openly about uh, about issues and thoughtfully. Not that she was in this case, but I'm just saying it, it, it creates an environment where we cannot be open with each other, and that's not healthy. And that's my bigger and broader concern. Uh, let's go to Adam and Langley. Hi, Adam. Hey, Jess. Thanks. I won't. Uh, I mean, everybody knows that it's a very complicated thing, so I'll stay out of that point. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the biggest issue is if everyone talks about how we need to have dialogue, we need to understand and come to the table. If we keep being disingenuous, we're never going to be able to do that. When she says things like crappy, we know she doesn't mean the people. We understand what she's talking about. Mm-hmm. It's a, an area of land that is very poor. It's been demolished through war. That's what she's saying. Can we give people the benefit of the doubt? Their language doesn't have to be polished. And is she factually correct? Let's just have real conversation and not look for reasons to be mad at each other. Let's look for solutions and give each other grace in the words we use. Adam, uh, great final words. Really appreciate uh, you calling. And uh, I think he's got a very valid point. There's no forgiveness from either side or three sides or four sides, whatever it may be. We just have little patience for each other. We've got about 10 seconds left. I just wanted to say thank you so much, Arun, for coming in today. Thank and you. I know you've extended uh, 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 an olive branch to Ms. Of Robinson. Of Come course. and visit the mosque and spend some time with the community as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, as always, thank you, my friend. I appreciate you coming in. Uh, I made a late call to you today. I said, look, I'd like you to come in and chat about this. And as always, uh, you're a great friend uh, to me and to this show. Really appreciate your time. I, I wouldn't miss it. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Jess. 
Well, you spent so much time talking about ministers resigning and, and uh, the Middle East. Let's talk about something that's actually uh, fun and unites people, and that, of course, is the World Cup. Uh, FIFA announced uh, this weekend its schedule of games and how many games would be uh, played in, in, in a variety of cities here in Canada, of course. Uh, Vancouver uh, will be hosting its first game on June 13th, 2026. It'll be five games in June in 2026 for FIFA. But we also got one game uh, for the round of 32, and we also got a, a game for uh, the round of 16. Uh, seven games in total uh, for uh, Vancouver. That's more than Toronto got. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the announcement is Blake Price, co-host of the Sakaris and Price Show at SakarisandPrice.com. Blake, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now, were you expecting in and around seven games, or did you think we'd have uh, less than that? Well, you know, it's an expanded World Cup. There's more games uh, than we originally had had bargained for and more games than we've seen in previous uh, World Cups. So that had us dreaming large. And I certainly had heard some scuttlebutt that we were in line to get more. Now, more than what? Well, we got more than Toronto. We got more than... Uh, eight other host cities that are involved in this World Cup. But I really, my over-under, to borrow a gambling parlance, would have been uh, eight. And I I had dreams as high as ten, to be honest. But wow. uh, perhaps getting a little bit greedy there. Hey, it's still great to have, again, more than a lot of other cities. Um, it's just we've got a great facility. You know, um, all due respect to uh, the fine folks of Toronto, but, you know, they get six dates there as a fellow Canadian host, that's really an inferior stadium. You put grass uh, in BC Place, we're talking about a world-class facility. The Renos have looked really good around BC Place, in and around BC Place, and, you know, if, if Toronto had had four games and we had been given nine, I would have been just fine with that as well. <laughs> I'm sure you would. Now, uh, the, the Toronto facility, BMO Field, it, it correct me if I'm wrong here, it's the smallest stadium in, in the tournament, even though they do have natural grass? Hey, correct. The hybrid grass, actually, so there's a little bit of artificial in there, but it meets FIFA requirements. Um, and, it, you know, it, throughout the regular course of the season with Major League Soccer and the CFL season, it's you know, uh, you know, in the mid twenties, but they'll have some temporary seating that will beef that up uh, over thirty thousand, I believe. So uh, it, it's it's bigger than it currently is um, when they eventually get to it for FIFA twenty twenty six. But it's still going to be on a you know, historically speaking, it'll be amongst the smallest uh, of the modern World Cup. They usually don't even include venues like that, but they felt the need to be in Toronto given that Canada is hosting, and so. Uh, there it has to be because Rogers Center, formerly Skydome, uh, just can't be retrofitted to soccer with all the renos that the Blue Jays have done recently. So it was there or nowhere for Toronto, and, and they chose to go there and uh, and make it work. So if we're going to have a grass pitch at BC Place, number one, does that have any impact on the Vancouver Whitecaps in your mind? And number two, will this be permanent after the World Cup? Uh, there's about a 1% chance of that. I will say it's a non-zero chance, but I'm not... I'm not holding my hopes. Um, hey, they can do amazing things with science these days. Uh, going no further than uh, a lot of the stadiums in Europe that are being built now with fold-away real grass stadiums where the, the pallets of grass literally just fold into the floor so that you can still do boat shows and that, all, all that sort of thing. That is just not in the offing for BC Place as a, as a government facility. 
they're not going to, it's going to be expensive enough to just put temporary grass in. Uh, putting in a massive system like that is just not in the cards for us. So I don't think that there's a chance that it, uh, it gets uh, uh, to be a permanent facility. Now, even just having a more simple grass surface that stays permanently is, is still more doable and that you can get artificial light on that. Uh, drainage is going to be the biggest challenge for this group in getting um, real grass in there and making sure that as you water the grass that there's runoff and, and appropriate systems to get rid of the water. Uh, but hey, even for the couple of years that it'll be there, I'm hoping it's a couple of years, Jess. Like I'm hoping that um, they want a test drive year with uh, the the surface at BC Play Stadium, and that uh, certainly the Whitecaps and probably the BC Lions as well might get a year uh, test run um, in 2025 playing on this real grass surface. That would be tremendous. That again might just be in my brain and only my brain, but I hope they I hope they do consider that. But yeah, I think we're we're odds on just going to enjoy it for the year 2026, and probably that's it. And I guess Allegiant Stadium, where they're going to be playing the Super Bowl this upcoming weekend, they have a, a grass field as well that they roll on. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, there's uh, Arizona has one too, where literally they've got a, a an outside field where they water it and grow the grass, and then when they need it, they just put on the conveyor belt and it slides on into the stadium. So that's another way of doing it as well. Uh, but again, there's no room unless you plan on tearing down Rogers Arena and laying a field out over there. <laughs> there's no place to do that for us here, Vancouver. Not with our land prices, that's for sure. So, in no. the case of the White Caps, to prepare, does that mean they'll have to play somewhere else for 2026? No, I would suspect that the um, because Major League Soccer is is you know five Major League Soccer stadiums in all will be used for the World Cup. Uh, I suspect they take a, uh, a larger than normal break. I would guess. Uh, might there be the potential where they play somewhere else? Maybe they do a temporary game on the on uh, the island like they are this coming week here at Starlight Stadium in Langford. It's possible um, if there are a couple of weeks on either side where the MLS schedule resumes, maybe they just make sure that those five MLS teams that are involved, including the Whitecaps, uh, that they are just on the road for those uh, for those games, so that's a possibility as well. Yeah, I was I thought okay, we'd get some preliminary games. But when you say you, you get, there's a game for the uh, round of 32 and then the round of 16, I mean this is pretty serious stuff at the end of the day. It, it's a, it's a lot of fun. So you, you, there is a path where those two matches include Canada as well. That would be a, a heck of a storybook run for for the Canadian team. But if they do win their group. Uh, the round of 32 game that is in Vancouver, that will be the Canadian round of 32. And if the Canadians somehow win that match as well, the round of 16 game in Vancouver will be the Canadian game in Vancouver as well. So Canada will stay here as long as they are top spot. But if they finish in second in their group and somehow squeak through in a wild card, they won't play their uh, their match in Vancouver. So that will be the goal. And you know they'll have a better chance... Um, uh, of, of moving on because they will be uh, the top team in the pool. So uh, the draw is still a ways away here. But when the draw happens, Canada will be the the first team drawn in that pot. And then you get you know lesser lights below that. Now, I say lesser lights in air quotes because it'll still be a very good team. Like the next team drawn will be a very good team, but it might not be, you know, an England or an Italy or an Argentina or Brazil. It'll be... Somebody below that, maybe like a Belgium, like we saw last time out, still a very good quality team. But as we saw in that Belgian game, I mean, there was a chance that Canada could have pulled off an upset in that match. So 
Um, we do have a chance. Not saying it's impossible, but they'll be up against it to, to get out of the group. Uh, the, the final question to you. I know this is a hard one to answer. Any sense of what tickets would cost? I know it's early and and they're not going to be cheap. But any sense? Like I've I've never gone to a World Cup. I'm curious as to what the ticket prices are before the scalpers get them. Uh, you know what? It's a great question, and the um, the framework for that you know keeps changing as we see uh, these global events. I'm not going to diminish how big they are. People will make the trip, but it's getting harder and harder uh, to get cities to commit to things like the Olympics and the World Cup. And you do have to make it fan accessible. You still have to dangle a carrot. You can't make people travel all across the globe these days and then charge them, you know, thousands of dollars for tickets. So, hey, it's going to be expensive. We did this in 2010. We went through this whole rigmarole. Um, and so they'll be akin to like a playoff game, I, I would think, you know, in, you know, for the Vancouver Canucks or, or something like that in the high hundreds. And, um, you know, will you be able to get something in the low to mid hundreds? Yeah, maybe that's possible as well. Um, you know, the bigger the stadium, the better chance you have of getting in. So maybe going down to the games in Seattle, there's six matches in Seattle. In, in some ways, maybe it'll be cheaper there, although you have to figure the gas cost of, of driving down there as well. But, uh, hey, it's a big stadium. Maybe the, the last few rows will be uh, more accessible to the common man. There you go. Blake, as always, thank you for your time. Anytime. For many years, Russ Grab was a spokesperson with the RCMP, providing information and context to many high-profile police events in our province and in our country. My early days as a crime reporter, I certainly ran into Russ many a time. He retired from the RCMP as a superintendent and became an executive boardroom consultant. He currently lives in North Vancouver with his wife, Marianne, and in 1920, he was diagnosed with a rare form of incurable leukemia cancer. His book, Traces of a Boy, delves into his lifelong journey coping with childhood trauma while leading a high-profile policing career, and he joins us now. Russ, great to see you. Great to see you too. Thanks for having me on. It's been a long time, my friend. I'm glad you're in, and I'm so glad to chat with you about this book. Uh, a fabulous book, first of all, and, and I meet a lot of authors, and it takes a lot of time, energy, and have to give of yourself to write a book, and I really appreciate you making time for us today and to share, share some of um, your journey. Uh, a lot here uh, in regards to your personal life, but also uh, your public life as well. Uh, and it's a difficult thing to write sometimes, uh, books, especially the story that you've told here. Uh, why did you feel you needed to write a book? Well, first, I should probably start off by saying why I didn't write this book. Uh, as you know, it's it's a memoir depicting uh, extensive early life trauma that mm-hmm. I experienced long before I joined the RCMP. So I didn't write the book for commercial gain, for industry recognition, or to stand as the poster boy for any noble cause. I simply wrote it to get my story out there, to tell the world what kind of person I really was behind the the crisp blue uniform that everyone saw on TV night after night for two Mm -hmm. years back in the late 1990s. Um, The real story here, Jazz, is that I'm not just some ex-RCMP superintendent who spent the better part of 30 years investigating perverse criminal violence I'm not just that guy about which you mentioned that was seen on national TV pretty well night after night for two years in the late 1990s. Yes, it's true that I got involved in cold case murder uh, files. Yes, it's true that Paul Bernardo, the, the famous serial killer, was my backyard neighbor as a kid. Yes, it's true, like you, I traveled the world, you know, Hong Kong, Manila, the, 
the Philippines, all over the world doing RCMP stuff. And, um, but the real story here, Jazz, is that I am myself the survivor of perverse criminal violence. More to the point, I'm the survivor of grotesque childhood incest. Yes, I said the I word, mm-hmm. incest. You see, starting at age three in the 1960s, I was relentlessly beaten, sexually defiled, and gaslit into a perpetual state of excited delirium by my very own mother. It was absolutely repugnant. It was cruel. It was the height of inhumanity. It caused deep shame and despair that still haunts me to this very day. It went on for over 11 years, from age 3 to age 14. The answer to your question, why did I want to write this book? Mm-hmm. To tell the, the true story of what really lies behind something like this. This book is written for anyone out there in your list, listening audience who wants to know what it's really like to survive the unsurvivable as a child and later go on to live an adult life replete with mental health and addiction, chaos and heartache, and as I openly confess in my book, inexcusable decadence, debauchery, and frankly, unforgivable human stupidity on my part. I start writing the book when I was first diagnosed with leukemia in the first wave of COVID Mm -hmm. in 2020, It struck me that the time was now to get going with pen to paper. I was told at the time that I had a life expectancy of two to three years max. And as I say, it struck me that this is the time to write my memoir, to tell the true story of what really lay behind the so-called famous rust grab from the RCMP from the 1990s. I do want to talk about your policing career, but I want to talk about what you've just addressed here. And I was, when I was reading your book, uh, I have this one uh, excerpt uh, highlighted. Um, one of the, the question was, uh, how does a child navigate through such madness? Um, and what you wrote was, the answer to this question goes back to what I once said about compartmentalization. When you're too small to fight, And too young to flee, you simply reconfigure reality inside your brain. Some children, for example, conjure up imaginary friends with whom they share all their fears. It's what Andy meant by second cousin to Harvey the Rabbit and Shawshank Redemption. For the rest of us, mere mortals, well, we we simply blame ourselves and idolize our tormentors. It's a quick and easy way to survive the unsurvivable. After all, if your tormentors are perfect beings with absolutely no faults, then it's only then it only follows that they could never have done anything bad to us. It actually follows that nothing bad ever happened. Period. We just will it so in our brains. How long did you carry this? That what you describe here. Well, the art of compartmentalization so that I could actually survive and not go completely insane dogged me from age 3 to 63. I only first started to shed myself of this affliction called compartmentalization when I started to undergo chemotherapy for leukemia and I started facing my mortality and realizing the end was near and realizing the time had come to forgive myself to forgive and forget, to let go, to try and shed this blanket of uh, compartmentalization and just embrace whatever 
was left for me in this life. Um, How did you, from the story that you've told of this little boy, end up in the policing profession? Well, it, it goes to this whole notion of compartmentalization again. Uh, when you hear RCMP members interviewed on TV and when they're asked, why did you join the RCMP? They almost always say it was to serve and protect, to do noble things, to protect people, to make a difference in this world. For me, it was none of the above. For me, it was a way of escaping my childhood. For me, the RCMP was nothing more than a moving freight train that I could jump on to get away from my childhood. I grew up in my teen years in the Scarborough area of Toronto with Paul Bernardo as my backyard neighbor. And it just struck me at that time at, at age 18 that the way to get out of this would to be join the, the for, French Foreign Legion or the Army or the RCMP or something and just get the heck out of Dodge and go as far away as possible, as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. 30 years later, I am retiring as an RCMP superintendent, having spent the better part of 30 years as a major crime homicide investigator. I'm just looking at uh, some of the interesting stories you've covered. Uh, you know, in the Air India bombing investigation, you were there was a spokesperson, APEC uh, uh, summit that we had here in the 1990s, uh, the Bingo Gate corruption scandal. I recall covering covering the avalanche death of Michel Trudeau, son of course, former Prime Minister. Uh, Pierre Trudeau and, of course, brother to President uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, in 1998, you cover the Holton family massacre in Mission, uh, even Ross Rabiati's gold medal cannabis use uh, to the Clifford Olson's faint hope by hearing uh, in Surrey in 1997. And those are just some of your many, many uh, uh, stories you've been involved with, uh, not just as a, someone representing the RCMP in front of the cameras, but actually as a senior investigator behind the scenes uh, as well. I'm, I'm curious, in your time, with the RCMP. Uh, did you enjoy your time with the RCMP, first and foremost? Because as I was reading your book, not that it's cynicism, but there is an underlying frustration and anger at the force as well, and the way it's, it's not, maybe not it's run, or certainly the, the direction it's taken. The answer to your question is no. Um, I always describe myself as the white sheep of the family, mm-hmm. as the fish out of water, as the person who never belonged. As I say, I didn't join the RCMP to uh, go off to do noble things. It was, for me, a way to constantly run, to escape. Um, often, you, you in the beginning, you often heard of Mark Zuckerberg being referred to as the accidental billionaire. Mm-hmm. If I look back on my career, I was, in many respects, the accidental superintendent. I really didn't want to be in the RCMP. I really want, didn't want to do this job. I didn't really want to be that um, front and center homicide investigator that I became. I never wanted to be promoted to superintendent. It was just a job that gave me that escape I was always looking for. Mm -hmm. One of the other issues that you talked about, actually, a lot is, and and you said it a few times in in the book, that you contemplated suicide within the context of your uh, policing career, and I believe even after your career, I think you were, doing, you were a business consultant at that time. Walk me through like, what was going through your head, uh, how you dealt with that. I mean, when you look at you from the outside, here's a guy who's high profile, uh, going places, 
And yet, away from all of that, there were moments where you contemplated suicide. It was something I thought of nonstop for basically 60 years. Behind the Armani suit, behind the fancy RCMP uniform was always this wounded eight-year-old boy. Mm -hmm. It's very similar to the story told in Sheldon Kennedy's book, Mm -hmm. entitled Why I Didn't Say Anything. In that book, he quite accurately describes that the the number one thing that possesses us when we go through these things as a as a youngster is profound shame and despair. It's just something we can never shake. Mm-hmm. Uh, not mentioned in the book is the fact that in the year 2016, I was actually arrested under the Mental Health Act in Victoria after uh, attempting suicide in my own home. I spend an extended period of time in the psych ward at Royal Jubilee, and uh, it, it's what got me first on the path to therapy, to being put in touch with the right people to help me unravel what I had built up all these years. And uh, eventually found my, I found myself in the arms and professional treatment of the world, literally the world's best therapist over on the North Shore, in, in the year 2019, who guided me on a path of healing and recovery, which then prompted me to write the book. Mm-hmm. She was amazing. She got me to talk about all these things. She got me to uh, unravel all the compartmentalization I'd built up. And How hard is that? It's got to be, it, it's worse than chemotherapy. And, and as a matter of fact, I'm dealing with chemotherapy and heart failure at the same time I'm going through uh, mental health mm-hmm. uh, treatment, mental health therapy. Exceptionally difficult. Just to go back to the very beginning and to think about, talk about the monster that was my very own mother. The predator that dogged me for 14 years when I was young was a woman was my mother. Her enabler was my dad. It was exceptionally difficult to, to be walked through all that therapy, but it was the best thing that I've ever done. It's allowed me to sit here today across from Jazz Johal and very calmly talk about my life in a way that I never thought I would ever be able to do in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I there are moments where... Um uh, you know, it really hit me. It's simple things like when your daughter um, Elena was sick, uh, and and just the impact on you as a dad. Um, yeah, your wife Marianne and the impact she's had on you. Uh, it, it was just a. It was very touching in regards to what kind of human being you are. I'm going to go back to the book itself. Uh, to compart to, to deal with the core issues and then actually to write the book and you're dealing with this sickness to this day this challenge this medical uh, challenge so when did you find time in regards to writing it well i actually wrote this book over the last three years um sitting upright in a hospital bed it was a period of time when i underwent 38 separate hospitalizations for what i call the big five stroke leukemia cardiomyopathy, sepsis, and kidney failure, all of which I had at the very same time. 
Uh, so most of the book was written while he was sitting upright in the ICU at St. Paul's Hospital and Lionsgate Hospital. Uh, at, you know, at three in the morning when it's dark and the nurse comes in to do her rounds. What are you doing, Mr. Grab? Oh, just writing a book. Yeah, right. <laughs> chuckle, chuckle. <laughs> but uh, it was the thing that kept me sane going through all this. Did. And it was the motivator to to stay true to the honesty of the book, to write something that's that's not at all sugar-coated. It's completely unapologetic and is raw vitriolic anger that, that I spew out onto the pages. Uh, Russ, you also sometimes refer to Canadians, which is a broader sort of frustration at society sometimes when you're, uh, uh, when you're uh, angry. And I think it's just a, a broader conversation, but the, the broader society that you're talking to, uh, do you still have that sort of frustration sometimes regards to society doesn't pay enough attention that we are not um, perhaps sympathetic or we are not uh, we've not created a society that helps those that are victims of abuse and make it easy for them to speak up or to provide them the help that they need. Well, I'm still grappling with that notion. As you see, as you saw coming out in the book, I draw the conclusion that back in the 1960s, there were essentially three things that defined Canada and Canadians in general. Number one, willful blindness. Mm-hmm. Number two, grandeur worship. And number three, depraved indifference. I maintain in my book, it was those three things and the combination thereof that allowed my mother to thrive as a predator. I still grapple to this day. I still see signs of that to this day. When I think about the downtown east side, I see willful blindness. Mm -hmm. When I think about um, Hockey Canada, I see grandeur worship. When I think about the conversations that we talk about residential schools and how everyone misses the point about the 60s scoop, I think about depraved indifference. When I chit-chat over backyard barbecue with my fellow baby boomers about the 60s scoop, they think we're talking about the 1860s. I still see signs of willful blindness, grandeur worship, and depraved difference in the modern world. And I'm being sort of schooled by my friends to sort of tamp down my uh, my judgment and my anger and to, you know, try and forgive and forget. But honestly, Jazz, if you look closely, and there's going to be a large proportion of your listening audience right now going, this is true. Mm-hmm. A lot of this still exists. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And uh, I want to recommend this book to our audience as well. It is raw. It is honest. Uh, and it took a lot of courage to write as well. Uh, Russ Grab uh, is the author. And the, uh, the book is called Traces of a Boy, Reflections of the Unfathomable. Russ, thank you so much for coming in. It's so good to see you as well. You too. Thanks for having me on. Let's uh, focus a little bit on uh, Paris. Yes, the city of Paris, the city of lights. Uh, the city authorities there say that large cars pollute more and are dangerous for pedestrians. Uh, so they are going to charge more, not right away, but uh, sometime uh, in May. Uh, voters in Paris uh, have approved an effort to drastically uh, increase parking fees for large sport utility vehicles and other heavy cars. It's the latest move uh, by the mayor there to reshape the French capital with 
more environmentally friendly and environmentally conscious and pedestrian friendly uh, policies. People with vehicles will have to pay, uh, SUVs will have to pay 18 euros, uh, a little more than $19 US or $20 Canadian for the first hour of public parking in central Paris and 12 euros in the French capital's outer neighborhoods. Uh, interesting, and not saying it's coming to Vancouver, but I thought it would be an interesting conversation with our next guest. Jeremy Cato is an automotive journalist at CatoCarGuy.com. Uh, Jeremy, uh, thank you for uh, joining us. Hi, Jazz. Nice to, nice to be joining you. Yeah. Uh, I know that's a city that's already um, uh, has uh, turned its nose down on e-scooters as well. I guess the, uh, they don't like those in the city core either. What do you make of this sort of uh, going after SUVs or bigger vehicles like SUVs? Uh, you know, if the, uh, if, the, if the effort is to get big vehicles off the road, it, it sort of makes sense because, uh, you know, a large SUV... Um, would pollute about use as much fuel and, and spin out as much CO two and other pollutants as um, two Honda Civics, let's say. Um, so, so there's a big difference between what a big, you know, Cadillac Escalade does and what a Honda Civic. Now, those kinds of vehicles are rare in Europe. Um, you know, we've been to Europe, and you know, I've driven in Paris. It's not a place I want to drive anyway, but I certainly wouldn't want to drive around Paris in a, in a big hulking Escalade. <laughs> um, good luck with that. And why would you do it? Paris has terrific public transit. The metro is fantastic. You know, so if you, you know, I've had to drive in Paris a few times. Uh, I found it uh, vexing and not particularly entertaining, and you don't see any of the sights. And when there's a terrific public transit system, bicycles are welcome and they're, you know, so... I, I think this is a bit of a tempest in the teapot. Mm. Now, now this, the, the the city says that it will impact about 10 to 15% of cars currently that drive around uh, uh, Paris, uh, and not more than that probably. Uh, they'll be impacted by the increased parking fees. Do you see something like this happening in Europe? I know they already have. Obviously, you pay more going to go into central uh, London uh, as a congestion yep. fee. Do you see, see any of that? Do you see any of that coming to North America anytime soon? I wouldn't be surprised if we saw something like that turn up in Toronto. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, <clears throat> not under this civic government. Um, you know, Mayor Sim and, uh, and and his council are are not um, not like the previous administration. Let's put it that way. But in in the congested cities of Canada, which of course would be Toronto, Montreal, and uh, and, and Vancouver, I could see that eventually going in that direction, especially Vancouver in the long run, because we have such a small downtown core. The problem that we have in Vancouver, um, you know, as opposed to Toronto and Montreal, is our overall public transit offerings are subpar. Mm -hmm. um, and I prefer to see them subway. Um, and, you know, so, so that, that's the challenge we face here. And the real challenge we face in North America is, getting governments to spend on infrastructure. Uh, they, they just won't do it. it. It's just like, you know, pulling teeth to, to get governments to spend adequate amounts of money on infrastructure because, frankly, it's easier to bribe people with their own money with handouts and giveaways than it is to build 
big um, infrastructure projects. Uh, I'm curious, uh, the enduring appeal of the SUV, and many of have said it's, it's a big problem when it comes to dealing with the greenhouse gas emissions. At the same time, it's incredibly popular. People love them, especially in the United States, but here as well. Uh, you can make smaller SUVs. You do have some of those as well. But how do we, th- this has been an ongoing issue. Everybody keeps talking about SUVs. SUVs are a huge challenge. Do you see the industry getting away from them at all? And still, from what I've been reading, it seems like they want to build more of them, not less of them. Well, you know, look, 85% of the vehicles sold in Canada are some sort of SUV or, or, or light truck of some kind, pickup truck. Uh, did I say 75? I meant to say 85%. Wow. I mean, that's what, that's what Canadians want, and, and there's lots of reasons for it. For the younger buyer, the younger buyer out there is a lot different than, I don't know, when I was a 20-year-old. Uh, the younger buyer out there today is a much more social animal uh, you know, travels with three or four friends, and they want utility and great infotainment systems. And the older buyer out there, uh, you know, boomers, and uh, I guess Gen X, um, getting older, and they don't want to climb down into cars. And then the third type of buyer that's worth remembering is a lot of people are far more safety concerned on the road than I guess they ever were when I was a kid, when I don't think we even talked about safety considerations. My dad's you know, his car he drove to work when I was a kid didn't even have seatbelts. You know, I mean, so SUVs, you sit taller, mm-hmm. you get better visu- visuals. A lot of drivers really like that. They like the open view of the road. SUVs provide more space for more people and more things. That's important. And for older baby boomers climbing into an SUV, the hip point as you climb in, you don't have to climb down. It's more comfortable. And for the younger buyers, so let's say the younger buyers, say under 435, 40, um, it, they're social animals. So they make a lot of sense. The, the challenge here is that um, the bigger the vehicle, I mean, this is your, your high school physics here, the bigger the vehicle, the more energy it's going to take to move it. And mm-hmm. the more energy it takes to move it, that means you're you're using more energy of some kind, whether it's electricity or gasoline. Jeremy, it's going to be a fascinating conversation because I think what happens in Paris, other cities are going to look at this as well. Uh, thank you for your time today. I really yes, appreciate it. When you're in Paris, you should be walking the streets. <laughs> I know that. Can I give I you one last quick tip? Sure, yeah. If you are in Paris and you do want to get as fast as possible from the airport to downtown, take a motorcycle taxi. It'll be the ride of your life. It's the only way I've ever taken a taxi from the airport, Charles de Gaulle, into downtown. You sit back there, they give you a heated blanket and a sheepskin coat and a helmet with a radio and the driver of the motorcycle, and I just use some big Honda Goldwing, gives you a tour of Paris, and you can get from Charles de Gaulle to downtown in 23 and a half minutes. That's great wow. advice. That sounds like a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> I might have to do it, it that. It is terrific. Absolutely terrific. <laughs> Jeremy. I highly recommend it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.